From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, and welcome to episode 70 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? Oh, I am doing okay. So I'm actually really... uh really excited right now so you probably isn't picking up on the audio because it's just low bass thuds out in the distance but i am currently seeing the top of the finale and hearing the sounds of happy hallow wishes going on oh, right really? now so i guess that pinpoints what time it currently is <laughs> while we're yeah. recording this but it uh, yeah no it just <laughs> it randomly happened i felt like i had to bring it up but I think it, it it must be interesting to live that close to the park uh, and be able to hear that. And, you know, I, I know folks who live near Disneyland complain. I thought, well, you know, the park's been there 60 something years. How long have you lived there? Yeah. It's like the people that, like, you know, they move next to an airport and then complain about the noise. But, yeah. um, I, you know, but, but I, I, I don't know. I would think there's something exciting about living that close. I don't know. There absolutely is. So I, for me, one of the greatest things, and I think about it every single time I walk out, uh, you know, right around nine o'clock ish, um, on a very calm night, no storms, just very peaceful. I can hear usually the train whistle or the steamboat even, and a hundred percent of the time, almost every single night, I can hear the electrical water pageant music. Oh, I would playing. love that. Yeah, I would love that. It, it's it's faint, like it's not. You, I, you know, I know it because I've seen it so many times, and I know every distinct music cue in it. But I just hear it, and it's like it, it's one of those moments where you have to pinch yourself. Like I, I've lived close to disney other times before uh in apartments and such um uh, one apartment even closer than where i currently live uh but it's it it always is just amazing so i I, for the longest time uh my wife and i lived literally right beside universal like our our apartment was right next to where they shot off fireworks for their last nighttime show so we we had a lot of noise and uh and we were also pretty much right beside where the fear factor live stage is there for people who know universal studios florida so like during halloween time when the bill and ted show would be going on all the way till one o'clock in the morning yeah we were we were listening to that every single night so that seems less magical to me than hearing faint train whistles and steamship whistles and i i will say that wholeheartedly (laughs) i loved both um they were both amazing this one's a little bit better like the the first time we looked at one place in the area where we are it, it was the right time of day when one of the trains 
was just leaving a station and train whistle went off and I heard it and I I wasn't looking in a mirror but if you asked my wife she'd probably say that I had the biggest smile on my face hearing the train probably. go off in the distance so. but that's I I don't know why that was on my mind it's not like we're going to talk <laughs> about trains today or anything <laughs> Oh but no! What's no, happening just, with you, just Michael? For a couple of episodes. <laughs> well, uh, the well, our granddaughter visited last week, and I took her to see Christopher Robin, and so I finally saw it, and I loved it. Excellent. I really, really enjoyed it. I think she was watching me. She knew she's nine, and and she knows she was watching me at the key moments to see is is Grandpa crying? Is Grandpa crying? And, um, you know, and that one scene with the cars, I, you know, I was concerned, is this going to become slapsticky? You know, it worked yeah. with it worked with what was happening at that time and what was going to happen in the next scene. Yes. So it it was OK. Yeah, it bordered. So, or, it was it, a yeah. little bit goofier and it could have been a little bit too much. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, I mean. They probably could have done it a slightly different way, but you know, it, it, it was it was okay. But I thought they did it. It, it melded well the uh, Milne version of the characters and the Disney version. I thought yes, and uh, but the story, everything about it was charming. The story was moving. I mean, yeah, okay, it was a little heavy-handed maybe in its message, but it uh, there were a lot of unpredictable parts in it too you know solutions to you know one of the story arcs Mm -hmm. you know that i won't get into but uh this is definitely worth seeing this and this is a film i'll buy oh absolutely and um it it was just great and i i chatted about it with my granddaughter afterwards thinking oh so what do you think the meaning of the film was and she got it i mean she picked up on what the meaning was i thought okay this is good so um yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm but, so happy that you enjoyed it. So it, yeah. the more I think about it, I haven't seen it since that opening weekend, but uh, I, I'm reminded of it every time I go into my dining room because that's currently uh, where all of our, our poo plushes are sitting because, you know, I had I, I did not make the decision. Kylie made the decision for us, but we had to get all of the plushes that they released in conjunction with the movie. Uh, well, I haven't seen those because I was thinking those poo plushes I would like. Those those character plushes I would like. I will tell you what, I was impressed with the ones that Disney Parks released. And mm-hmm. they were released in Disney stores too. A lot of them, I, I believe they're pretty much sold out I'm all sure around. But then I also saw that, uh, I believe it's pronounced as Steifel, the German teddy bear company oh yeah um, a very expensive ger- german teddy bear company yeah they also released um just they didn't release the kanga and rue but they released um a, a poo tigger piglet and er eeyore plush and just looking at the pictures it's like I, I feel like I need to reinvest in those, even though those are also <laughs> sold out and it's paying third party prices now on eBay and resale prices, but they are gorgeous. Um, I'll bet they are. They uh, yeah. And it just, even if you have no interest in getting them, just, just Google a picture of them. They are, they are breathtaking. Um, mm. Really, really well done. I'll take a look at that. 
Yeah, you, you absolutely should. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did very much. Yeah. Oh, and if people also seeking a plushes and all that, I did go to Target and I got my uh, Target exclusive Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse. Have you seen that? I didn't. No. Oh no, they have some for Mickey's 90th birthday. They have a, a plush Steamboat Willie. When he squeezes his hand, he moves back and forth, and and the Steamboat Willie, you know, little whistly, you know, jingle oh, plays, no and they. Have uh, and then they have figures Mickey through the years, little figures that are in a set. Oh, those wow. I got, the, I got the last one, and then they have other things too. But those were the two items I wanted. Oh, so, that's cool! Yeah, and they and I felt they were reasonably yeah. priced. But well, I also have an update already because we've mm-hmm. been talking. I, I was able to just Google it real quick, and it's I, you know, we were just talking about the Steiff teddy bears. Now that I looked it all up and stuff, the USA version of them actually hasn't come out yet. The ones I was talking about were, I guess, just in Europe and uh-huh. and uh, the United Kingdom. The United States ones are coming out in November, and uh, they are doing pre-orders right now. It's a limited edition set of 2000 for the Christopher Robin gift set. It is a staggering $450. Oh, I believe it for but those, yeah. Just just gorgeous. <laughs> so, and I believe they're also small because it's saying they're only 8 inches. So it's tiny. Uh-oh. Yeah. Not a toy hmm. intended for adult collectors. No. Many episodes of Connecting with Walt, and in my 60 years of Disneyland series for our Disneyland show, I've talked about Walt's lifelong love for trains. In his first memo outlining his idea for the little Mickey Mouse park across the street from his studio, Walt described many features that would be built years later at Disneyland, including a railroad and trains circling the park. Joining us today on Connecting with Walt is Michael Brogy, whose family is closely linked to Walt Disney, Walt's love of trains, and the creation of Disneyland. Michael began his Disney career as a Disneyland cast member when he was in college. And after graduation, he became a publicity writer for the Walt Disney Studio. Michael has authored and co-authored several books, including the award-winning Walt Disney's Railroad Story and Walt Disney's Happy Place and Walt Disney's Words of Wisdom. With his wife, Sharon, he co-founded the Carolwood Society and the Carolwood Foundation. Michael, welcome to Connecting with Walt. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you. Uh, You know, Craig and I always talk about the trains. We talk about how that's one of our our first things that we do when we enter the parks, especially Disneyland, because it truly is a grand circle tour of the park where you get to see the park and everything that's going on in it. And um, can can you share with our listeners how the Brogy family became so integral to the story and legacy of Walt Disney and his parks? Well, the, the story of Walt Disney is has many parts to it. And the part of our family uh, took a, a role in helping Walt uh, achieve his first, uh, I would call it, uh, his first real venture 
into more than film, uh, more than uh, the uh, cartoons, more than the uh, live features, Walt and Lillian wanted a place that they could call their own and located in the West LA, West LA area of Homeby Hills, which was a, a beautiful area in uh, West Los Angeles. And it was located between Bel Air and Beverly Hills. Very nice area, frankly. And uh, they paid $25,000 for the five acre uh, lot. And in this lot was uh, an area that Walt could eventually start his own model railroad. And uh, it was located in West LA area that was near uh, the uh, Sunset Boulevard not far actually from UCLA mm-hmm. and the uh, the family that owned that area was uh, known for developing some very well-known uh, communities like Westwood and so on and uh, eventually they opened up uh, other areas that they uh, developed um, in the west of the San Fernando Valley in Thousand Oaks. And that family uh, started uh, subdividing land back in 1926. And then later in 1949, uh, the son of the founder, uh, he started selling lots in the area and Walton Lillian wanted something special for the family and Walt wanted his railroad for the backyard 1949 after Walt had taken possession for the five acres Walt came to the machine shop where my father was in charge of uh, all the activities that uh, were involved in building uh, cameras and various uh, various uh, forms of equipment and for various uh, productions that the studio was involved in. And, and when Walt approached my dad and said, he had just acquired acreage in uh, Homeby Hills, I want you to build a miniature railroad for my new backyard. Well, my dad by then had worked for Walt over 10 years. And when the boss says, can you do it? You have one answer for the boss. <laughs> he says, oh, sure, Walt, we can do that. Yeah. And, uh, and so um, um, my dad took notes from Walt, uh, things that he, he, he was interested in. And you have to understand that at that point, Walt had already made up his mind that he wanted a backyard miniature railroad. And he had help from 
Ollie Johnston, who had uh, a 112 scale live steam railroad at his home in La Cunada, uh in that area. And, uh, and of course, Ward Kimball. Now, Kimball had uh, equipment that he had uh, purchased. Uh, he, he bought an 1881 Baldwin Mogul, which is a, a 260 uh, steam engine that he built, that, that, well, that he, he purchased. And it was going to be uh, um, basically uh, scrapped. And so Ford uh, Kimball bought it, and uh, it had been a, a Nevada Central uh, locomotive. He had it hauled to his home in the 1935-1936 period, and then from that period, he had totally restored it, and it became uh, a wonderful uh, example of that era of live steam in his backyard in San Gabriel. Well, Kimball invited Walt to come out to the house, 1941. Uh, Walt was given the honor of being the honorary engine uh, engineer in the uh, backyard party. At that backyard party, uh, Walt was given the honor of being the on, uh, honorary engineer. And at that backyard uh, party, he mentioned to uh, Ward. Uh, some of these guys look like they really know something about railroads. And he met a fellow by the name of Dick Jackson. And Dick Jackson uh, became the first uh, person in the Western United States to build a 112 scale live steam railroad at his home in Beverly Hills. And, and Walt. Uh, met Dick Jackson at Kimball's backyard party. And so Walt had not been in the cab of a steam locomotive since he was a young fellow uh, back in uh, in Missouri uh, working on the, uh, the railroad from Kansas City up to uh, Iowa. and. And Walt was working as a what they call a news busher. That's a, a young fellow that su- sells goods to passengers while they're on a run. And Walt had uh, got himself hired, even though he wasn't actually legally old enough to do that job. And he kind of dipped his way into getting a job as a as a news butcher. He was only 14. You're supposed to be 16. Well, he got hired anyway and spent a summer working on the railroad. And while he was doing that, he used to go to the uh, up to the cab of the uh, steam engine and and he had these beautiful uh, apples that were grown on the family farm in Marceline, Missouri. And those were his uh, way of getting lessons on how to operate a steam engine with the huh. the, the, uh, the equipment the uh, the valves and so on so here's a kid 14 years old 
uh, working the railroad, the Missouri Pacific Line, and uh, kind of filling in from knowledge he had gained from his uncle, Mike Martin, who was an operating engineer on the, on the Santa Fe line. And the Santa Fe line ran right through Marceline, Missouri. Uh, and so uh, the kids that lived in that little town, uh, population 2,500, uh, they would uh, go down to the, uh, the train station and uh, wave to the engineers as they were hauling the passengers and freight through the little town. And so Walt, as like an eight, nine-year-old, was uh, falling in love with the whole idea of railroading and, and steam locomotives. So uh, this was all part of his growing up. And then he kind of got involved in cartooning in Kansas City and then eventually joined his brother, Roy, uh, with the Disney Brothers uh, Cartoon Company in Los Angeles. But what stayed with Walt was this uh, railroading experience as a, as a young fellow, and then got involved in, in cartooning. So years later, 1941, Walt is invited to this party at Kimball's house, and as the operating engineer, the honorary engineer of that, that party, he was put in charge of operating Kimball's engine in that backyard party. And he had not been in the cab of the steam engine to ever since he was a young fellow. So he reconnected back with that childhood memory. And it was there's a wonderful picture of him with, with Ward Kimball where uh, Walt's got this wonderful smile of being back in the, in the throttle of a steam engine. <clears throat> and so mm. with that experience, he reconnected. So, so it's almost like it was part hey. of Walt's soul, you know, being part of that, you know, being in the locomotive. I had never heard the story that he traded his father's, I think they were called Wolf Apples, for lessons in how to operate the locomotive. I mean, well, I don't know if Elias knew what was doing that, but I mean, talk about being an entrepreneur, you know, at such a young age already. Well, what was, um, even as a, as a a young fellow, as a, as a, a teenager, he had tremendous interest in, uh, adventure. And uh, of course, as he uh, as he evolved, uh, and the family had moved up to Kansas City, and Walt had dropped out of school in tenth grade, never finished the tenth grade, and uh, but he had this passion. And uh, Ward Kimball said something important about Walt. He said uh, Walt was just uh, a, a Midwestern. A farmer who happened to be a genius, mm-hmm. and 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 beyond that, in in my experience of knowing Walt and writing history about Walt and so on, that it was more than a farmer. He, he was uh, an engineer. He was a visionary. He was a filmmaker. He, and and most of all, in my opinion, uh, he was a, a, a teacher. 
an instructor. And uh, he gave freely of his uh, thoughts of how things can be done and things that had never been done before. And to grow up around that environment of, of, of having this passion that Walt shared. And as the project of the Carrollwood Pacific Railroad, the Backyard Railroad, as this project grew, um, it was December 24th, 1949. It was Christmas Eve, obviously. And, and uh, one of the things that the uh, shop guys, the team, wanted to do is have this engine operating by Christmas Eve. It was a party at the studio. So they laid a loop of uh, a circle of track on stage one at the studio, and they put the uh, the engine uh, and tender on the track, and uh, and they they fired it up, and they actually ran this locomotive around this loop of track on the sound stage, and it was kind of like a a celebration of Walt uh, to have this done uh, in time for for Christmas Eve. And then from that December all the way to May, uh, the uh, track was laid at the backyard. Uh, The uh, tunnel was dug, 90-foot-long tunnel. Trestles were built, uh, 46-foot-long trestle. And uh, all within this five acres, that was a marvel of, of engineering. And some of the folks that were involved uh, included Eddie Sargent. Eddie was a, um, a draftsman. And when, when Walt and my dad talked about the railroad, Walt made it clear he wanted something special, something unique. Now, up to that time, uh, the, the railroad hobbyists, everything was one twelfth scale. Uh, one inch to the foot. And Walt decided he wanted his railroad to be larger than everyone else. <laughs> so he said, I want my railroad to be one eighth scale. That's 50% larger, uh, one and a half inches to a foot. And that's considerably larger than, than you know, people wouldn't are, are normally accustomed to. And since no one had done that, there were no models, there were no plans, everything had to be scratch built. So my dad and the guys working in the shop uh, started fashioning this railroad. And when uh, Eddie Sargent asked my dad, well, did Walt pick out a particular railroad locomotive that he wanted for his backyard? And my dad looked at his notes and he said, yeah, Walt had decided that he wanted it to be uh, an 1872 diamond stack locomotive that was modeled after the first steam locomotive that was built in California in 1872. And it was called the Central Pacific 173. And that particular engine being the first one built in California, all other locomotives up to that time were built in the East Coast and then were loaded on a sh- on ships and actually went all the way around the Horn 
up to the California coast. That's before uh, the Panama Canal was was uh, developed. So, so here was California history, which Walt loved, and a beautiful model that uh, was uh, a perfect match to what Walt wanted for his railroad. And then beyond the the locomotive, Walt decided he wanted all freight cars. So they started building gondolas and uh, freight cars and uh, um, various types of of freight. And then ultimately a a caboose. And Walt decided he was going to build the caboose himself. Now, you have to understand that at at that time, uh, Walt had already developed skills of of carpentry. His father was a carpenter. Uh, And so that skill was passed down to Walt. And and before that, uh, Walt's dad was um, laying track for the Union Pacific Railroad in 1880 when they were building track from Kansas City across the Great Plains up into the Rockies to Denver. And and uh, Elias, his dad, worked for three years on laying track uh, before he returned to Kansas City and uh, reconnected with uh, Flora Call, who became ultimately Walt's mother, and they were married in Kismet, Florida, which is not too far from the site of Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. So there was a very interesting uh, coincidence of location of uh, Walt's parents being married there in central Florida. Anyway, to kind of tie this all together, here's the skills of, of, of woodworking. and Walt decided he's going to have uh, a caboose. And so he undertook uh, building the superstructure of a caboose. Uh, they built the uh, frame and the, uh, the wheels for the caboose. Now all that was done in the shop at the, at the studio. But then the woodworking, all the superstructure and the interior fully detailed, You'd write down to magazines and, and a, a pot-bellied stove, all to perfect one-eighth scale, built by Walt. And that particular portion of his miniature railroad, he kept the caboose in a barn that he had built in his backyard, which was the kind of headquarters for the backyard railroad. And then the rest of the cars were kept in the long uh, tunnel and the engine and caboose were uh, kept under cover on a raised uh, portion of trackage in the backyard. And you had uh, about um, 2,615 feet of track, uh, like half a mile of track, but in scale, that was actually eight miles of track designed by Eddie Sargent to go around the house, through the tunnels, and so on. Well, when Walt came home with Eddie Sargent's design for the layout of the backyard, uh, his wife Lillian complained 
when she saw the layout spread out on the dining room table and she looked at the layout and she said, wait a minute, Walt, this is a backyard railroad. And what I'm looking at is a design that goes not just in the backyard, but all the way up across the driveway through the Rose Garden, (laughs) all the way around the house. And she says that, in my opinion, is not a backyard railroad. (laughs) And, And then Walt, realizing that he was up against Lillian, and even though Lillian was about five feet tall, she did hold to her opinion. And the next day, Walt goes back to the studio uh, and calls down to the fellows in his legal department, and he said, get up here to the office. So one of the attorneys heads up to Walt's office, and they said, you know, what's up, Walt? And he says, well, I've got a problem. And he said, okay, well, what, give, give me a, some detail. And he said, well, I need a right-of-way uh, drawn uh, with all the legal language to uh, protect my rights to run my railroad. <laughs> and I felt, where is the railroad going to run? He says, it's in my backyard. And the fellow says, well, look, Walt, California is what they call a community property state. You don't need a right-of-way agreement to run a private railroad in your own backyard. And Walt's answer was, you don't know Lillian. <laughs> I, want a, I want a legally enforceable right-of-way agreement. So they did. They drew up this agreement with all the legalese. Of first party of the first part, party of the second part, beam of sound mind, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, the only time that that full agreement was ever uh, printed was in my book, Walt Disney's Railroad Story. I put the, mm-hmm. the full text in there so that if anyone ever needed that document, <laughs> there it is, all <laughs> word for word, the, 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 the legalese. Then, <laughs> um, but there was a caveat, a caveat being that Lillian stood by her agreement. If you're going to run your railroad around the house, that railroad track is now going to run through my flower garden. You have to figure out a way to install your track that's not going to interfere with my right of way or with my garden. So Walt then goes back to. Eddie Sargent and my dad and said, Let, we need to figure out a problem that we've got. So they had a fellow who was the head of construction at the studio, uh, a fellow by the name of uh, uh, Rorax. And, and he came over to the house and he said, Walt, we'll build a barrier there to shield the, the visibility of the track. And, uh, and, Walt says, no, I don't think a, a barrier is going to work like a big truss, a big uh, 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 bunch of vines or something growing on a on a trellis. That's not acceptable. So then they came up with the idea of a a tunnel, and the tunnel, in order to get through the yard, uh, calculated out to be ninety feet long, and that meant a trench uh, about eleven feet deep. And 90 feet long, 
And as they, they did the trench, Walt decides instead of a, a straight trench, he said, let's make it interesting. Let's put an S curve into the tunnel. So you enter it from one end. And when you're inside the tunnel, it's totally dark. Nothing but tunnel. Can't see the other end. And so they argued that, Walt, that makes it a lot more expensive. And Walt says, I'm not doing this to save money. Just do it. And then he told his secretary, Dolores, later, be sure I don't see any of the bills going on in the yard. Don't care. I don't want to see the bills. Just make sure they get paid. So, so ultimately, they built uh, the S-curve tunnel. And I can remember when I was uh, eight years old. And this is 1950. And my first ride on a freight car, actually it was a, a box car, and I'm straddling the box car. And, and something that was really interesting about the, this, this, uh, this miniature railroad, Walt was a stickler for accuracy in scale. And at the time of the, the railroads that were back in the uh, 1870s uh, in that era, uh, they had a, a form of suspension that was uh, uh, standard for freight cars. And uh, what happened later is that particular type of suspension was outlawed by the federal government. They stopped doing that type of suspension because it was uh, prone to um, run off the rail, to, to derail and, and crash. But Walt wanted that type of suspension. So here I'm riding on this boxcar. You know, here's this kid. And I, I have no idea that I'm on a boxcar that is subject to derailment. <laughs> and we're going down the, road, down the rail. And, and so we safely made it up a particular uh, routing of the track. And then go through the rose garden and then entering the tunnel. You got to imagine. You go into this tunnel. And it's totally pitch dark. You can't see anything, but your senses are being attracted by this environment. You can smell the smoke from the steam engine, the coal. And so you get this, this uh, affecting your sense of smell. Your sense of feel, you could feel the vibration. Your sense of hearing, you could hear the chuffing of the locomotive. At the other end of the of the, of the train, you could hear the, the sound bouncing off the, the walls of the tunnel. And so you have all these different senses being impacted by at one time. And then eventually, at the far end of the tunnel, here's this little crescent of light that starts to develop at the far end of the tunnel. And then that crescent of light grows into full, full light. You're out into sunlight, and then instantly you're in to a 46-foot-long trestle that's 11 feet to the ground. And then you hit a curve, and the curve on the right is a 200-foot 
valley down <laughs> into a canyon and you got nothing between you and this outlawed suspension freight car you're riding on. And so, I mean, you're talking about the first thrill ride of Walt's existence that he created in his backyard. And when I think back on it later, uh, that was quite an experience. Um, you know, being in this dark ride in Walt's backyard. So it was quite an honor when I think back on it, that what a thrill. And then, and then Walt made my dad and my older brother, Roger Jr. and myself were Walt's weekend crew at the house. Because Walt owned a, owned a railroad. you got to have a crew. So we were the designated crew. And we'd show up at the backyard to Walt's house. And uh, we would see Walt uh, in the, uh, the barn that he had built in the backyard. And, and Roger Jr. and I would go up to the long tunnel. And we would take out the freight cars. And we would wipe them down, dust them off, and uh, make sure they're all pretty for that day's uh, visitors. And we would uh, get into the freight cars and we could ride them on the rail because it was a, a lower space below, which was called Yen Said Valley. Yen Said was Disney spelled backward. So he called it Yen Said Valley. So we rode the freight cars down into the Yen Said Valley and, and we're mingling with Walt and following his orders and we're filling the tender with water and putting sacks of coal that Walt ordered shipped uh, to his home from uh, uh, Pennsylvania. It was anthracite quality coal, and it was ground to one-eighth scale nuggets. Again, typical of Walt's detail. So uh, these are the things that were occurring uh, back in those years. So 1950 to 53 were those uh, weekend encounters. And I remember being out in front of the barn one Saturday and Walt comes out of the barn and we're looking at this line of probably 100 people waiting to ride the miniature train. And, and Walt said to me, I don't know any of these people. I don't know how they found out I've got a backyard railroad. There was no gate at the front of the property. Anybody could come in to the property and got in line to ride the miniature railroad in the backyard. And uh, so it was just an interesting time that Walt was accommodating strangers to come to the backyard and uh, and ride the train. So he was always generous about it. And I remember uh, late one Sunday, um, and I was pestering Walt, would he allow me to run his engine, to be the, the engineer, drive the, the steam engine? Mm -hmm. And Walt says, as long as all the other visitors and kids particularly are left from his backyard, and there's just me and my dad and my brother, he says, then we'll, we'll allow you to run the engine. So I remember... Uh, taking a seat on the the uh, tender, and you had a couple of pegs you put your feet on, and you go with the throttle. And Walt was sitting right behind me, and uh, taught me how to run the the locomotive around the backyard, and uh, and that was quite an honor to uh, 
to actually be the engineer uh, with, under Walt's command uh, in his backyard. So those yeah. were the ways yeah. we we celebrated his interest in railroading, and and later in after 1953, Walt got this idea for a bigger railroad, not one-eighth scale, but narrow gauge, and the idea of a theme park. Um, he had come into discussion about the possibility of, of building a, a theme park uh, next to the studio, which a lot of people know that that was 16 acres next to the studio that Walt designated would be where his uh, miniature railroad and maybe a boat ride and maybe a, a, a little town would be built next to the studio and be open on the weekends, free to the public, and uh, allow people uh, interest. Because he felt the studio itself, watching cartooning and so on, he says it's kind of boring, but a theme park next to the studio, that's what he wanted to do. But then when he went to the city of Burbank, suggesting that uh, the city of Burbank be the location and the city. Uh, in hearing Walt's description of a carousel that his daughters liked to ride in the Griffith Park, which was near the studio, and the city council representative said, there isn't going to be a theme park with a carousel. Uh, the city of Burbank is not interested in a uh, the sound of a carousel in the backyard, in the, in the, in the studio. <laughs> So with that, Walt realized that Burbank wasn't going to accept the idea, and they started looking for other property availability and moved out throughout Southern California and ended up uh, with the building of uh, the freeway system down in uh, in uh, Anaheim. At that time, Anaheim was just mainly uh, orange groves and other open property, and Walt decided a cheap land about 200 acres of land and about 45 acres inside the berm. And around that would be a railroad that interestingly Walt would own privately, that there would be not a, uh, a named uh, railroad belonging to uh, Disneyland Incorporated or Walt Disney Productions or any other property, it would be uh, Retlaw, Retlaw Enterprises, Walt's private company that owned the Walt Disney name. He preserved that in his family's name, that he owned that name, and the railroad around Disneyland owned by Retlaw. So when Disneyland opened in uh, July 1955, if you worked on the railroad uh, as an engineer, or, uh, conductor, or a, a fireman, your uh, paycheck was uh, Retlaw Enterprises. And uh, often Lillian uh, would go to the park and pass out the, uh, the paychecks every huh. Friday <laughs> to the, the folks that worked on the, on the railroad. In fact, interestingly, October 7th uh, this year, Retlaw is holding a reunion. And they've got a bunch of people that worked on the railroad back in the days when it was Retlaw. 
ultimately, after Walt passed away, um, and uh, Michael Eisner became the the CEO of the company, uh, they purchased the Disneyland Railroad. I mean, it was originally the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad. Santa Fe was one of the original sponsors of of park attractions, and it, it was originally the the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad. And then um, after Walt again was gone, um, Santa Fe decided to cancel its sponsorship. So um, it left it open to uh, other sponsors. Well, the company never found another sponsor to take over uh, the railroad at Disneyland. So it's now just simply Disneyland Railroad. But the important history was that the family uh, traded uh, for a tour of, it was 42 million uh, in company shares traded for the Backyard Railroad and the Walt name. Walt Disney's name was then purchased by the Walt Disney Company. So it was kind of part of that acceptance by both parties. And that railroad then became uh, the company's property. And then subsequent to that, Walt Disney World uh, opened uh, with uh, in 1971, uh, again with live steam and antique railroads uh, built by Baldwin, all restored and then and used at, uh, at Walt Disney World. And then every uh, Disney park opened after that in uh, Tokyo and and outside of Paris and and then uh, 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 um, the uh, park in uh, uh, Kong, um, what was it? There's Hong Kong. Hong Kong, thank you. Yeah, yeah I was mm-hmm. thinking Hong Kong. And then then the last theme so, park. Uh, the Shanghai uh, was, park. Was, was, was Shanghai. And Shanghai became the first park with no railroad. Yes. There's no railroad. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, you know, I kind of, kind of, you know, said why not keeping the history of Disney parks by keeping the railroad. And no one's ever answered that. Uh, that I did hear that the Chinese uh, felt that was not an important part of Disney history and therefore no railroad or maybe someday mm. they continue to develop different mm. attractions maybe they will uh, you know, offer a, a railroad as part Something of it, like that. Now, it you've, it now you you've referred to your father but I don't think we've actually stated his name and so some of our younger listeners might be wondering who is your father and so of course it's Disney legend Roger E. Brogy who was Walt's master mechanic and that name may be familiar to our listeners who wrote who have ridden Locomotive 3 out at the Magic Kingdom uh, in Walt Disney World because of course that that locomotive is named for your father so, um, so just a lovely tribute, I think, to your father. Well, when you look at the way uh, the parks have contributed to people who supported Walt and contributed to Walt and building parks and so on, 
And uh, when Walt Disney World was was developed, and Roy uh, was head of the company, and he suggested that my dad's name be put on one of the uh, locomotives, and my dad suggested Walt's name on the engine number one, mm-hmm. uh, engine number two, named the Lily Bell after uh, Mrs. Disney. So that became engine number two. And then my father's name on engine number three, uh, Roger Brogy. And then engine number four, my dad suggested Roy's name. So uh, Roy O. Disney is on engine number four. And so that means that there were three Disneys and a Brogy at mm-hmm. the Magic Kingdom and Walt Disney World. So I always felt that my dad was in great company. And, oh, and there was one other one other honor that was the uh, uh, windows on Main Street. And there's only one other person. Uh, my dad had a window on Main Street in Magic Kingdom, Florida, um, a window on Main Street at Disneyland in California. And only Walt was the one other person that had his name on windows in both parks and on a steam locomotive. So mm-hmm. that puts... My dad in some very important company. That's true. And and what a great trivia question, too. <laughs> well, we're at that time of the show, the time where you all have to put your thinking caps on because it's the This Day in Disney History quiz. And this, of course, is for the week of September 1st. We're going to continue with our our abbreviated format where we have the spotlight on Craig. And <laughs> battling myself. Just battling like a contender. Yourself. Three weeks in a row. That's right. Let's see who wins this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, this is September 1st. So, Craig, this world leader arrives in the United States on September 1st, 1955, for a 13-day visit. Local authorities refuse his request to visit Disneyland, sparking an international incident. Who is this world leader? I feel like I know this, and just because I thought I read something about this recently... But I also think it might have been later on that it happened. But was it Nikita Khrushchev? It was. Okay, good. It good. absolutely was. So it premiered Nikita Khrushchev. He is supposed to tour Los Angeles housing projects whilst his wife and children visit Disneyland. Although he wishes to accompany them to Disneyland, he is turned down when um, Los Angeles and federal security officers claim they cannot guarantee his safety. The very upset premier and his family attend a luncheon at 20th Century Fox Studios instead. Although, you know what? I'm thinking, I'm thinking I I messed up the date again, but I think I'm catching myself this time, unlike the other one. Because I remember this story and I'm thinking on this one because I re- I think of the years off I, because I remember Walt Disney wanted to um, show him the his, his submarines. Yeah, I <laughs> want to say it might have been around like '62. So yeah, that's what I'm thinking as well. Honestly, and I, I I don't know. 
sorry for interrupting. No, I I, I read about this just mm-hmm. uh, in a story that wasn't even like out of a Disney site or anything. It was just yeah a random article where it popped up. Uh, yeah, so. yeah. I don't know quite where. <laughs> I don't know what it is with me in years this time. But anyway, yeah, and because and Walt the the park security was they were already yeah. Walt wanted the photo of him and the premier together at the submarine ride because Walt wanted to show it off yeah. his fleet of submarines. But it was Los Angeles police officers and and you know Secret Service and all that who said, Oh no, we can't guarantee your security there and Nikita Khrushchev made a big deal what do they have there do they have intercontinental missiles do they have state secrets they they don't want me to see you know oh he went on and on and on about it he left in a huff yeah left the United States in a huff makes sense I would too if I got kicked kicked out of wanting to go to Disneyland in a way (laughs) me too so let's okay. On September twenty second, twenty twelve, Walt Disney Animation Studios debuted a newly restored digital print of the animated short "Hungry Hobos" at the thirty ninth Telluride Film Festival. Which Disney character starred in this believed to be lost animated short? I believe that's Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. You're right. Yeah, exactly. Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And this was a nineteen twenty eight short that they thought had been lost. So, yeah, and I think okay. it got re released on one of the one of the Blu ray releases, if I can remember it, correctly. I just can't remember which one. Yeah, you're right, and I don't remember which one it was either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, on um, September 3rd, the Disneyland television series airs on ABC for the last time as Disneyland on September 3rd, 1958. What will the series be called when it returns on September 12th? See, I feel like this one is extremely easy, but because I only know three names that it went under. At least in the classic style. But that makes me think that I am missing a different name that maybe it was just that for like a couple weeks. But I believe, if I'm correct, that after it was Disneyland, uh, before it made the jump to the wonderful world of color, it was Walt Disney Presents. And that is correct. Okay. It is Walt Disney Presents. Very good. So. Okay. These are my questions this week. They are. They are. You you are lucking out here. So, on okay, September 4th, which Disney theme park held its grand opening on September 4th, 2001? Uh, well, that... I feel like we've had this discussion on this show. And the am I second guessing myself again? It has to be. It has to be California Adventure, right? Is that your final answer? Um, I don't remember September for that. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. And. 
I also don't remember what date. <laughs> That's how terrible my memory <laughs> is, even though we just went over all that very recently. So I just, I genuinely can't think of what other parks okay. would open up at that time period. Maybe the Walt Disney Studios in France or Tokyo Disney Sea. Um, okay, you, you can keep rattling off the park names and you will get it. <laughs> <laughs> you may have already named it. <laughs> Out of those three, you um, just have to zero in on it now. Yeah. Um, Choose one of those three, and you will have it. You have I, a third chance. See, this is where I get embarrassed after being so confident a couple questions in. Um, I'm going to go Tokyo Disney Sea. And you are absolutely right. It had its <laughs> grand opening at the Tokyo Disney Resort. Featuring over 20 attractions, it is Disney's second theme park in Japan and ninth in the world. The park has a nautical theme and is broken up into seven distinct areas. And, of course, the park's two iconic symbols are the Disney Sea Aquasphere. That's a water fountain located in the entrance plaza and a gigantic volcano, Mount Prometheus, located in the center of the park. And it erupts. Also on this day, Tokyo Disney Resort celebrates the grand opening of the first hotel to be built inside a Disney park in Japan, Tokyo Disney Sea Hotel Miracosta. And... You would love this park. This is a magnificent park. It's and this, this is why this just rubs salt in the wounds when Disney California Adventure opened. Because there was this lavish theme park that was like nothing Disney had built. And then there was this cheap theme park in California like nothing Disney had built. Except... Every attraction, except for Superstar Limo, had been built yeah. pretty much before. So, um, anyway. Yeah, um, I, I will get to Tokyo Disney Sea. So, that is, I, th- I believe right now, that is a 2020 goal of mine. You might as well wait until they finish their expansion. I know, yeah. but the, the reason it's 2020 is because, uh, not to not to give the love to the the other person there, but... If everything goes right, that's when Super Nintendo World's supposed to open up in Japan. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, it's kind of multiple reasons. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, September 5th, the very first Oswald the Lucky Rabbit cartoon was released on September 5th, 1927. What is the name of this animated short created by Walt Disney and Ub Iwerks? Well, I know we've talked about this one for sure. We have. Uh, and um, it's it's genuinely not coming to me. I'm guessing you didn't prepare for a multiple choice scenario for this one, did you? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Every question I chose this week, we have discussed. I, I, was, I was trying to throw you a bone here. Thank you. Well, this <laughs> one, unfortunately, uh, there's so many Oswald the Lucky Rabbit shorts out there, and uh, and you know, I don't. My headphones only reach about three feet max, and unfortunately, <laughs> my Oswald book is probably about nine feet away from me right now. So there's no way of me to even cheat. So I'm well, just, I know you're honest. Yeah, I'm just gonna have to I'm gonna have to admit I I don't know. I don't even have a general guess on this one. It's trolley troubles. 
Yeah, so, I wasn't. I wasn't gonna yeah. get that. Yeah, and happy birthday, Oswald! So be sure on September fifth, celebrate. Yeah, put on your Oswald ears. Go back something. in the archives. Listen yeah. to that episode. That's right. Or watch if you have any of the Blu-rays, or or watch on YouTube uh, some of the Oswald cartoons. Yeah. So September sixth, writer Felix. Salton was born in Budapest, Hungary on September 6th, 1869. His 1926 book, Bambi, A Life in the Woods, inspired the 1942 Walt Disney animated film Bambi. Another of his stories, The Hound of Florence, inspired a live-action Disney film. Which film did this story inspire? See, you really threw me fear of loop there. I thought when you said he was the author of Bambi, you were going to ask me which animated feature was adapted <laughs> from the book Bambi. And I got genuinely excited for a second. Um, okay, so a live action. So I'm guessing somewhere in the 50s or 60s. Hint on that, maybe? Right, well, the, hou- the Hound of Florence. You are in the correct time frame. Okay, The Hound of Florence. Um, so that's where... That's, that's where it is not doing well for me, because as soon as I hear Florence, I think of the Florence in Italy. And I don't know if it has to do with anything. I'd, I'd focus on the hound. Focus on the hound. Um, mm-hmm. um, okay, I'm going to go out on a ballpark guess on this since you keep saying hound over and over again. Old Yeller? No, no. no. But it, it it's the Hound of Florence is a fantasy about a man who turns into a dog, and it was the inspiration for Walt Disney's 1959 live action film, The Shaggy Dog. I did we? I know we've talked about the Shaggy Dog, but do we go into that history on that? Mm, I don't know. I don't think so. It sounds oh, okay. genuinely like the first time I've ever actually heard that that was the basis oh, okay. of it. But that's exciting. Mm-hmm. It is. Isn't it interesting? Learn something new. There you go. So, okay, and finally, September 7th, guests take their last ride on this Magic Kingdom attraction at Walt Disney World on September 7th, 1998. Okay. So what closed in that time period... I know you're not going to give me a hint on the park, so I'm not even going to bother asking. Well, I, I said the park. Oh, Guess you said Magic Kingdom. Last ro- I'm Magic an idiot. Kingdom. <laughs> it's late. <laughs> and it's late for me, but I, I will say that because my mind went straight to a park and an attraction, and I will flat out admit it wasn't a Magic Kingdom one. Um okay. It was it was an Epcot one, um, but so Magic Kingdom. Um, I'm trying to think. I don't think anything in that time 
closed in Frontierland or Adventureland. In Fantasyland, it's got to be around the time that 20,000 Leagues or Mr. Toad went away. And I'm kind of in the same, maybe over in Tomorrowland, it would have been like Delta Dream Flight. Um, you you um, have named you have named the attraction. Okay, I've named the attraction in, in one of those. Yes, I'm thinking. I'm just trying to th- see. This is where it gets a problem. Our family trips were ninety two, ninety four, ninety six, and then two thousand. So, <laughs> so everything was gone by 2000. Yeah, it was that was a tough period. I still paid attention to Disney, but it's that point in my life where my family thought that we needed to get out and see other things like Washington DC and New York City and Colorado and not Disney. So shame on them. Uh <laughs> I'm joking, of I course. Know. For broadening your horizons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can't believe they would try to make me a well-rounded person instead of just a Disney-obsessed enthusiast. But um, I'm leaning on this one. From what I remember with, like, with 20,000 Leagues, it closed. And then it was one of those things that never reopened. And... I want to say that Dream Flight closed a little bit earlier, but I think from all my memories that Mr. Toad's did close in 98. So I'm going with Mr. Toad's. You're right. Mr. Toad took his last ride. This popular Fantasyland attraction was scheduled to close at the end of the operating day. So well, it very it good. Very there for a while for yeah. those two questions. <laughs> but you you pulled through. So and thank you so, for choosing easy questions. Yeah, yeah. Good job. Thanks. No, Craig, hearing Michael Brogy talk about his father, Roger E. Brogy, you know, his boyhood growing up around Walt Disney and his studio, it really makes me grateful for the opportunity to host the show and bring these stories to our connecting with Walt family. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. So it's just, I I commend you once again for uh, just pulling together such an, an another intriguing interview. Um, it's and it's it's fresh stories for me in a lot of these cases, especially with Michael. So I hope that that goes for our, our audience out there in general too. That these stories are fresh and, and brand new for them as well. So it always makes it more exciting that way for me. Yeah, and and it's so important that we capture these because as we've talked before, the the people who knew Walt, you know, they're um, well, they're joining Walt. Yeah, which is a terrible is a terrible way to end this episode. But it's and Michael has such unique stories because they're they're about you know the this area of interest Walt had from the time he was a little boy on and and how but this interest that he had in trains how much how it magnified and it it it, it inspired him from his backyard railroad to where you know I, I've heard 
Michael talk and write about how, you know, it started to give Walt his sense of forced perspective, the way he designed his um, backyard. He, he um, you know, his barn, he made it lower in the ground, you know, lower elevation so that the sight lines would be proper as you rode the, you know, the Carolwood yeah. Express, as you rode the Lily Bell, all this stuff and to where, you know, it magnified him into, you know, circling this huge park. And um, so it's just interesting how, it, you know, how Walt's love of trains just sort of manifested itself yeah. and, and all the tr- and all the train films he made. Yeah. <laughs> also, well, when you think about it, I, I look at it from the aspect, too, of it with Michael in particular, is that he, you know, he was going through this this experience around Walt Disney while he was still relatively young. Um, and, oh, that's, yeah. and what I like about that is, you know, we, th- there are documented interviews with, with some of the Imagineers and the nine old men about working with Walt, but they were at a de- very different perspective. They were, you know, I, I don't want to say colleagues in a way, but you know, they're, they're of a like mind, a, a closer age. Um, it's, a lot of times when it comes to finding out these these stories about Walt, I love hearing it from from uh, like like the Mouseketeers when mm-hmm. they were young working with Walt because it's it, sometimes they had that perspective of we know who he is and we know why he's important, but it's you don't think about it at the time or he was like an idol for them. It was like it just it varies so much in that way more than adults who got the chance to work with Walt. So mm-hmm. it's such an interesting uh, perspective that, uh, you know, li- luckily that's, there are a lot of people still who can bring that, but um, we just got to keep finding them and interviewing them, I guess. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's also interesting. The folks that we've interviewed and, and even my personal experience was when, Walt didn't talk down to children. Uh, you know, he respected children. He listened to them. He took in their opinions. Sometimes he acted on their opinions, especially when it came to the park. Uh, but even some, so that's an interesting aspect. Yeah. Whereas other adults, especially those in power and leadership positions, will put down children or ignore them or not think they're important. Walt. Walt loved children, but but he respected them at the same time, and and realized their their opinions are valuable, their thoughts are valuable, and he made them feel that way. He made he made the young people that worked with him, the ones that we've talked to, and the ones I've heard in interview, you know, in presentations say, and we knew Walt valued us. He knew he was listening to us, and that's that's a unique skill. You know, not a lot of people have, even educators, when I was a teacher, uh, not even all my colleagues um, had that skill. Oh, yeah. No, I, I <laughs> totally understand it. I, it's, I think it's, it is very commonplace for that to be the situation. Yeah, yeah. So it really, really special. Yeah. And although we'll talk about this in more detail next week, you can hear Michael talk more about Walt and his interest in miniature trains on September 29th in Celebration, Florida, when he and Donald Duck voice actor present from 
Carrollwood to Canyonville, hosted by the Carrollwood Society. Um, Michael and Tony Anselmo, who's the Donald Duck voice actor, will talk about how Walt's love of backyard railroading inspired his animators to create the Donald Duck cartoon short Out of Scale. Uh, and if you're a Chippendale fan. You, you will enjoy this um, cartoon short, too. We'll have a link to the event website in our show notes where you can find out more about the event and purchase tickets. And tune in next week when we go into more detail about this event. So join us next week when Craig and I continue our conversation with Michael Brogy. And Craig and I would like to thank Connecting with Walt listener Jim for letting us know about the Carrollwood Pacific event on September 29th and putting us in touch with Michael Brogy. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners find you on the Dis Unplugged network of shows? As always, you can find me on the Walt Disney World Edition podcast, the Universal Edition podcast, the Best and Worst of Walt Disney World, uh, the Dis Daily Fix, and on Twitter and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook. I'm at Michael Bowling, the one with the Connecting with Walt banner. Instagram, Michael Bowling, the Diz. And you can connect with both me and Craig on Twitter on our official Connecting with Walt Twitter page, at ConnectWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man. Walt Disney and his brother Roy. <laughs>